It's been nearly a year since the hullabaloo began over the new class of weight loss drugs. And as someone who's prescribed them for diabetes and weight loss, I thought it was time to weigh in. One thing I've realized with the emergence of these drugs for weight loss is that there's also been a reemergence of weight bias, some in overt and some in insidious ways, as well as always myths, lots and lots of myths. So today, let's tackle some of those myths and get a primer on what these drugs are all about. Welcome back to Health Bite, my podcast where I offer you small, actionable bites towards healthy weight and weight management through greater mental, emotional, and physical well-being. I wholeheartedly believe that our relationship with food is a window into our relationship with ourselves. Understanding this relationship will not only facilitate healthy weight and weight management, but will have rippling effects that impact every aspect of your life. In the nearly two decades that I've worked as an obesity medicine specialist, I have seen firsthand the life-changing effects of this transformative work, and I'm so excited to share my insights with you. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Udine, and I created this podcast as an alternative to the noise to offer you knowledge-based guidance in the areas of nutrition, fitness, habit change, and mindset that I use with my patients in my medical practice every single day to help them achieve healthy weight and health. More episodes are available at dradrianudim.com slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter and shoot me an email. I'd love to hear about your journey. Okay, here we go. Let's dig in to this week's episode. Welcome back. So today we're going to talk about the new class of weight loss drugs. And I'm going to put new in quotation marks because actually these medications have been around for over a decade for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And so we're going to talk about the types of drugs, what they do, why they're necessary, and a little bit about the bias that has trickled in in terms of obesity and obesity bias with the emergence of these drugs. So first things first, I want to address why drugs? Why not just do it on your own? So many of my patients lament why they can't do it on their own. Why can't I lose weight on my own? They feel angry that they can't do it on their own. They feel ashamed that they can't do it on their own. Why do they feel like they can't do it on their own? Because their bodies are working against them. And here's what I mean. Our hunger is managed by a set of hormones. So when we eat, the food goes down into our belly. It releases certain hormones that then signal satiety or fullness in the brain. That makes sense. It makes sense that our hunger hormones respond to food intake or nutrient intake and tell our brains whether or not they should be hungry based on what we eat. But when we lose weight, our hunger hormones actually go up. So those hormones that tell our brains that we're hungry will go up after weight loss, while the hormones that tell our brains that we are full actually go down. So there's this hormonal shift following weight loss that promotes weight regain. Our bodies are actively trying to make us feel more hungry so that we can eat more, 
so that we can regain the weight. This has been shown in studies uh, happening as soon as 10 weeks after the dietary intervention, but also lasting one year out, even if people have regained some of their weight. So this drive towards weight regain is really profound, right? There's other things that our bodies do. For example, our metabolism changes. Now there's a lot of misinformation about metabolism. People always talk about crash diets, crashing our metabolism. And it's true that certain dietary interventions can tank our metabolism more than others because of the effect that it has, or they may have on our muscle mass or lean body mass. But here's the truth. Whenever we lose weight, our metabolism goes down. Why? Because metabolism in, is in essence, the calories that is needed for us to maintain our body, to keep our bodies alive. And if we've lost 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, that's 10, 20, 30 pounds less flesh or body that needs to be maintained, that needs to be kept alive. And so by virtue of that, anytime an individual loses weight, the calories necessary to keep that individual alive goes down. Therefore, their metabolism goes down. What's more is that our bodies become more efficient at extracting calories and even extracting fat. So there are certain enzymes in our cells that help break down fat from the bloodstream so that we are able to absorb those free fatty acids, those basic components of fat into our cells and into the body. When we lose weight, the enzymes that help break down and therefore absorb fat go up. So you see, there's all these mechanisms that are at play that help or hurt rather by promoting weight regain. And one might ask why? Why do our bodies wanna regain the weight? Well, think about it. Let's go back to evolution. Let's go back to hunters and gatherers. And remember that for most of our human lives, we did not have this kind of access to food. We did not have Uber Eats. We did not have access to calorie dense, abundant amount of food. We had to hunt and gather and wait. And so our bodies develop mechanisms to hold on to calories, hold on to energy, hold on to weight for the times when energy and food and calories were not as readily accessible. Moreover, our bodies respond to threat, to the threat of death and dying. And if we don't get adequate nutrients, we're going to die. And so the body has set up mechanisms to promote hunger as opposed to weight loss, because in our evolutionary way, it was the absence of food, the absence of energy that was going to kill us, not the long-term abundance of that energy. And so again, our systems evolved to trigger hunger over satiety. So all systems are go, promoting hunger, promoting weight regain, 
when we lose weight because it triggers that survival mechanism in the body. Does that make sense? So we can talk about prevention. We can talk about preventing obesity, preventing excess weight. These are all important conversations. But here's the thing. If life has gotten the best of you, like it has for 80% of us or more, and you've slowly gained weight over the years, or you put on a chunk of weight during a difficult time of life, let's say the pandemic, and now you're in a position that you have or are carrying excess weight, it's going to be hard to lose that weight. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's hard. And it makes the argument, it makes the case for weight loss pharmacotherapy or medications. This notion though, that we have to do it on our own is a form of bias. Think about it. Do diabetics need to do it on their own? Do we ever tell diabetics, hey, manage your blood sugar on your own? Did you know that the most common type of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is a result of excess weight, as is obesity? Yes, there are genetic factors that make it more likely, but ultimately, the reason that people become diabetic is because as our weight goes up, our bodies become insulin resistant. What does that mean? Insulin is the hormone that helps us manage blood sugar. When weight goes up, our insulin becomes ineffective at managing blood sugar. Over time, this gets worse and worse and worse, and then blood sugar will go up and is uncontrolled. And when we have uncontrolled blood sugar, then we are diagnostically diagnosed as having type two diabetes. It occurs because of insulin resistance, which occurs because of weight gain. That's why the incidence of diabetes and obesity in this country has gone up together. That's why they're called the twin epidemic. But we don't say to diabetics, just do it on your own or just lose weight on your own. No one ever thought of trying that. We give them help with drugs. This to me is bona fide discrimination. If we don't tell diabetics or hypertensives or anybody else to just quote, do it on their own, then we shouldn't be doing that to our patients who have developed obesity or excess weight. Finally, why? do it on your own? Why do we have to do anything on our own? In fact, I say, gather your army, gather your tribe, gather the people around you and the things that are going to support your goals, whether they're coaches, doctors, therapists, or drugs, gather what you need in order to meet your objective. There is no shame in that. So we talked about why it's so hard to lose weight what happens to the body, what happens to our physiology. I hope that's given you kind of the why as to why we should consider weight loss drugs. So in come weight loss drugs. Historically, there haven't been many. Historically, the weight loss drugs that have been on the market have been associated with adverse effects. So I think most of us who are old enough, when we think Weight loss, we think fenfen. And of course, fenfen was a combination therapy that was fentramine and fenfluramine. It was fenfluramine, the other fen that was problematic. It caused uh, valvulopathy or kind of poked holes in heart valves. 
and was taken off the market. Fentramine, by the way, is still around and still readily used. I do have a podcast in the past where I talk about the other types of weight loss drugs. But back to the point here, that history of adverse effects, I think also scares us. It also scares us out of wanting to use medications for weight loss. It also scares a lot of doctors, which is why a lot of doctors will refer to specialists like me. This newest class of drugs are injectable drugs that are as a class GLP and GIP analogs. Now, GLP and GIP are hormones that we normally release in the body. Remember I said, when we eat, our body responds to food intake by releasing hormones that do a couple things. In the case of GLP and GIP, they do uh, two main functions. They have two main functions. One is that they enhance satiety. So they send a signal to the brain that says, Woohoo! Hey, brain, I got some food down here. You can go ahead and turn off that hunger valve or that hunger signal. They also send a signal to the pancreas, the organ that releases insulin, saying, Woohoo, pancreas, we got some food down here. We've got some sugar. Can you send me some insulin to manage this extra sugar that has come along with this food intake? So it makes sense that these drugs are FDA approved for weight loss and for the treatment of type two diabetes. Now, in terms of weight loss, these drugs, uh, these analogs, and by the way, analog basically means that it's a mimic. So these are synthetic or chemical mimics of these hormones that we all normally release in our body. And when it comes to weight loss, these mimics do a couple other things. They also slow gastric transit. So that means that food hangs around in the stomach longer. And because it hangs around in the stomach longer, it aids in that feeling of satiety. It also can be one of the reasons why the side effects present. We'll talk about side effects in a minute. But by having the food hang around in the gut longer, then people are going to have a greater sense of satiety. It also does certain things to white tissue, uh, I'm sorry, white fat and brown fat in terms of thermogenesis. The science of it is kind of complicated, but suffice it to say that these hormones do things to our metabolism of fat that help us with weight loss. So that's what these drugs do. And by the way, they are considered pretty safe. These drugs are new in terms of the treatment for obesity or weight loss, but they've been around in some cases for over a decade for the treatment of type two diabetes. And we know that they're a relatively safe class of drugs. They do have potential side effects. Those side effects are limited to the gut. It makes sense. These are gut hormones. And so the side effects are going to be gut related. The most common side effect is nausea. Sometimes the nausea is so severe that it can cause vomiting. There are certain types of patterns that I've noticed, eating patterns that make this worse. So remember, these drugs are slowing down gut transit. Fatty foods also slow down gut transit, make food hang around in the gut longer. So people usually will have worsening side effects if they have a really heavy meal, if they have a really fatty meal, they may have side more side effects. 
We can manage these side effects with anti-nausea medications. And because these drugs are currently once weekly formulation, older drugs were daily injectables. These are weekly injectables. We usually manage them fine with anti-nausea medication when needed. Other side effects, it can cause changes in bowel movements. Some people will complain of looser stools. Some people will report constipation. Again, these are side effects that are easily managed with over-the-counter medications. And then finally, GERD or reflux. Uh, diet can worsen that. So alcohol can worsen reflux. There's many reasons why people shouldn't consume alcohol with these drugs and while they're trying to lose weight, but alcohol and fatty meals can make the reflux or the GERD worse. What about serious adverse effects? Well, one of them is pancreatitis. So pancreatitis is an inflammation of the pancreas that can be a medical emergency. It presents with abrupt nausea, vomiting, and severe abdominal pain. You should not be experiencing abdominal pain from these drugs alone. That is not a side effect. And the nausea in pancreatitis is typically not mild. It is significant and what we call volatile. So it's kind of not your mild garden variety nausea. It's pretty severe. Pancreatitis is a potential side effect. It usually happens in less than a percent of individuals. And one of the things we don't know because these drugs have been around so long for type two diabetes is that, is it really the drug that's causing the pancreatitis or is it the diabetes? Because we know that diabetes is a risk factor for pancreatitis. That having been said, I don't wanna dismiss the fact that pancreatitis is a potential adverse effect. And then finally, Animal studies have shown growths in the thyroid. Now, these are animal studies. Again, that's not to dismiss the potentiality of this in humans. Something to keep in mind. What we do know is that these drugs have beneficial effects on weight, blood sugar, as well as beneficial effects on the heart. And so overall, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of positive outcomes from having these medications around. So that gives you a little bit of the background as to how the drugs work, what are the side effects that we need to look for. I also wanna address this issue of people gaining weight once they're off of it. The drug is not doing anything to your body or metabolism after the fact. All the drug does is it helps curb or manage your appetite while you're on it. Just like a blood pressure medication is going to curb or drop your blood pressure while you're on it. We do not expect for a blood pressure medication to quote work when you're off the drug, right? It's only going to work when you're taking the medication in terms of lowering blood pressure. In the, by the same token, these drugs are only going to work in suppressing appetite while you're on it. Does that mean that you have to regain the weight after you are off these medications? Studies show that patients will typically regain the weight, but many of my patients want to use these medications as a jump start, as a way to help curb appetite while they get all their ducks in a row, get their dietary patterns set, start exercising, get their sleep in order, right? Do all the things that help support a healthy weight. And 
I don't think that is a unreasonable way to go, but keep in mind that these are very potent suppressors of appetite. And once patients come off of it, that appetite returns. And so we have to find ways to manage that appetite in a healthy and weight neutral way so that people don't regain their weight. Otherwise, that is a risk. Now, let's talk about this whole issue of Ozempic versus Wegovy, the treatment for diabetes versus treatment for obesity. And let's talk a little bit about shortages because in some cases, the very same drug has two separate names for separate indications. So in this case, semaglutide, that's the technical term, is packaged and approved for diabetes under the name Ozempic and packaged and approved for weight loss or for obesity under the name Wegovy. It is exactly the same semaglutide. It's the same drug. It's kind of like if I made apple juice for my kids, which I wouldn't because I don't believe in juice, but I digress. And I packaged that juice in a pink bottle or a pink cup and said, hey, this is girl's juice. And then packaged that very same apple juice in a blue cup and said, this is boy's juice. It's the very same juice. So too, when it comes to Ozempic and Wegovy, it's the very same thing. So if people are using Ozempic off-label for weight loss, they're basically using a drug that is already FDA approved under a different name, of course, for weight loss. So when there's a Wegovy shortage, but not an Ozempic shortage, what does that really mean? Does that mean that we're favoring diabetics over people who are struggling with obesity? It's the same drug, but in essence, we're saying that diabetics are more deserving and therefore we're going to make that same drug available as Ozempic, but we're not going to make it available as Wegovy. Think about that for a minute. Why? Why are we doing that? Obesity causes as much harm as diabetes, if not more harm. In fact, the irony of it all is that, as I mentioned before, obesity causes diabetes as well. In addition to a whole host of other things, obesity affects every organ system from head to toe, stroke, um, intracranial hypertension in the brain. Uh, it causes heart disease, hypertension, high cholesterol. It causes fatty liver, steatosis, actually fibrosis and cirrhosis of the liver. It causes obstructive sleep apnea. It's associated with worsening asthma. It's associated with a bunch of cancers, including breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer. It causes joint abnormalities. It causes phlebitis and skin abnormalities. It causes depression and social stigma. So obesity is associated with significant, what we call comorbidity or other diseases. So why should we not treat them as such? Why should we withhold a medication that is available for the diabetics and withhold it at the same time for our patients with obesity? That to me is discriminatory. Not to mention that when it comes to diabetes, we have multiple, multiple, multiple drugs 
So this notion of we're stealing medication from diabetics. And again, I'm not recommending using this medication for five pounds or 10 pounds of weight loss. I'm talking about an individual who is a candidate for weight loss pharmacotherapy because they have the diagnosis of obesity, because they qualify. They have very few, much fewer options to treat than do the diabetics. We currently have over 10 classes of drugs to treat type 2 diabetes. And within each class, multiple, multiple drugs that fit each class, making us as physicians have a huge array of options to treat diabetes. Whereas for obesity, we really have a handful of drugs and nothing that comes even remotely close in terms of efficacy to these GLP and GIP analogs. So that brings me to something that I saw on Instagram that absolutely infuriated me. A dietitian was suggesting that patients were stealing drugs from diabetics in the name of quote, diet culture. How shameful. How is it that this is not a form of fat, fat shaming? Somehow, we know that fat we're fat shaming as a society when we suggest that everyone who is overweight must lose weight. Some would suggest that it's fat shaming when doctors suggest that excess weight causes harm to the body. It's unfortunate, but it is the truth that excess weight causes harm to the body. And so we should not fat shame. We should not make people feel bad that life got in the way and they gained weight as a result, but we should, from a physician's perspective, empower people when they're ready to get those extra pounds off in order to live a healthier life, in order to reduce the likelihood that they'll go on to develop diabetes or heart disease or the many other conditions that can come about with excess weight. But somehow, it's not fat shaming to shame individuals who have obesity and need and want the help. It's not fat shaming to accuse people of stealing diabetes drugs when the very same drug is approved for diabetes and for obesity. And our patients with obesity are wanting to use it to help reduce weight and reduce comorbidity. That to me is a form of fat shaming. Just like we shouldn't assume that everyone who has excess weight should or must lose weight, it is a personal decision. An individual who has obesity and qualifies for weight loss drugs should not be shamed for seeking the help that they quite frankly need and deserve. Which brings me to who's the right candidate? I certainly have had my share of friends and acquaintances stop me at parties and say, hey, can I get Ozempic or can I get Wegovi or these new medications for weight loss? Who says who can get them and who cannot? Well, there are guidelines that determine or guide our decision making. Physicians can decide to use certain medications in ways that are not, quote, on label or indicated. But most of us who are in this field and who treat uh, patients with obesity will go on label and use medications for the indications 
that are necessary. So when it comes to weight loss or weight loss medications, our guidelines say that individuals who have obesity, which is defined as a BMI or body mass index of 30 or greater, that's usually roughly 30 pounds of excess weight, these individuals qualify for anti-obesity pharmacotherapy, AKA weight loss drugs. So if you have a BMI of 30 or greater, or you have a BMI of 25, in some cases, 27 or greater, these are people who are in the quote, overweight category, and they have a comorbidity or a diagnosis that is associated with obesity. So if they have a BMI of 27 and they have esophageal reflux or diabetes or hypertension or high cholesterol, one of these or one of the many comorbidities that are associated with excess weight, then they qualify for weight loss pharmacotherapy. There's a whole other conversation about BMI, its limitations, that is out of the scope of this podcast. But in terms of who's a candidate, typically that or those are the guidelines. Final caveat. I'm not suggesting again, that individuals who want to lose five or 10 pounds should get these drugs. And I don't prescribe drugs to these the people who have five to 10 pounds to lose. But if an individual has obesity and has been struggling with their weight, then weight loss medications might be the right option for them. Last, last but not least, I want to address something that is kind of annoying in the news, which has come up quite a bit, which is Ozempic face. Ozempic face, which refers to, I guess, the loss of fatty tissue in the face that makes individuals look gaunt or super thin. There is no Ozempic face. It has nothing to do with the Ozempic or the medication. It has to do with weight loss. We have never had medications that were so effective at helping people lose weight. And now people are using these drugs in droves. And because of the significant weight loss they're experiencing, they are seeing the weight come off everywhere. Unfortunately, we can't tackle the part of our body that we want to lose weight. We can't say we want to lose weight in our butt, but not in our face. We want to lose weight in our gut, but not in our boobs. We can't choose. Weight will come off of everywhere, including the face. And so there is no Ozempic face. We really should be calling it weight loss face. Anytime an individual is doing anything to lose weight and is successful at losing significant amounts of weight, we're going to see that weight come off anywhere and everywhere, including the face and other areas that may not be as wanted or regarded. Hi, friends, it's Dr. Adrian, and I'm dropping into your podcast to offer a love letter to you. I believe that our hunger represents our unmet emotional and spiritual needs. And by leaning in and listening to our hunger, we have an opportunity to hear our needs and to respond. I know this not only from personal experience, but from listening to the stories of hundreds, if not thousands of patients over the past almost 20 years. I have compiled these stories, including my own, 
into Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. This book is not just about weight loss, but about life and contains lessons that I know to be life-changing. If you don't believe me, head over to my website at dradrianudim.com where you can obtain a free sample or to amazon.com and check out the reviews for yourself. Finally, I want to end with this. First and foremost, this is informational only. This is not intended to be medical advice. I am a doctor, but I'm not your doctor. And so I am not telling you anything that you should take to mean to be personal medical advice for you. If you want to take this information, talk to your own physician, make that decision with your own doctor in terms of whether or not you're a candidate for these drugs, please go ahead. This podcast is for informational purposes for you to be informed and also for me to share my opinions. The decision to take medications for weight loss is an individual decision that should be made with the help of a physician who knows how to manage obesity. It should take into consideration the duration of excess weight, past attempts, presence of comorbidities, the degree of excess weight, among other factors. It is a medical decision. It is a personal decision. It is not a shame-based decision. And we as a society need to stop shaming people who are ready, willing, and wanting to lose weight. Some maybe are not ready or willing or wanting, and that's okay too. Again, it's a personal decision. But just as we have no right judging someone who is overweight and not ready or interested to lose weight, we should not be judging those individuals who are ready and who decide to use medications for help. So that's all for today. As you can see, I'm super passionate about this topic. Shaming in obesity is rampant in every segment of society. We see it affect hiring practices. People who are overweight and obese are less likely to get jobs, less likely to get raises, less likely to get paid the same as their quote, lean counterparts. We see it in education. We see bias by peers. We see victimization. We see bias by educators and reduced educational opportunities for individuals with overweight and obesity. And finally, and most sad to me, we see discrimination and bias in the healthcare setting, not only by physicians, but studies have shown that bias exists in amongst nurses, amongst psychologists, amongst medical students, amongst medical residents. This results in reduced access as well as reduced quality of care. I think if you're in any environment in which you are interacting with individuals with overweight or obesity, and that basically means all of us, then it behooves you to check your bias. I don't think that it's always um, known to us. This is often, as is the case with many types of discrimination, implicit bias. We're not even aware of our biases. But again, given the given the huge numbers of individuals who have overweight and obesity in our society and the impact 
of discrimination on their mental, emotional, and physical well well-being. It is important for us to check our biases against each other and probably most, most importantly, to check our biases against ourselves. Stop shaming yourself if you are in this demographic and get help if you need it. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you think that anyone would benefit, please share it with someone that you love. As always, we would love for you to head over to wherever you listen to us and hit us up for a review. And last but not least, and finally, I hope you have an excellent week. And I look forward to seeing you here again next week on Health Bite. Until then, bye now.